Amen. Praise Jesus. Thank you for coming. Uh, this is, I think, the most anticipated night uh, of this series, and I'm glad you all are here. Oh, thank you. As we get started, I want to remind us of the theme verse for this series on eschatology, and it is found in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Uh, one of the things that I, I really do pray about tonight is not that we change any of your uh, persuasions on eschatology, but I want you to see four men who love Jesus and love each other be able to talk about something that can have some strong opinions, right? And, and we can, we can uh, it can have some heat, and we can uh, have that heat up here, but also uh, continue to do it as men in Christ. So I want to introduce George Huff. George Huff is our, one of our elders, and he uh, has been here for a long time. He is going to be taking the dispensational position as we consider our questions. And so uh, re we've introduced that, so I'll, I'll let that stand for a second. Paul Mills is uh, representing our amillennial position and uh, he is, has been coming for some time and has gotten to know uh, several of us on staff. And we've had lots of conversations and making fun of each other on, you know, uh, email and Twitter and other things. Text messages. Yeah, text messages. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and Pastor Benji, uh, that you know, is going to be taking the position of post-millennialism. Uh, and we've... He kind of jumped into this fray because I was talking to he and James one day and said, hey, we don't have anybody that we know that is a post-millennialist. And he said, well, hey, you know what? I'll read up on it and I'll act like a post-millennialist for the night. So he's assuming for the next, <laughs> the next 60 minutes, that's his position. Uh, so, so he's formerly known as Pastor Benji. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> formerly known. And so we're going to be taking uh, these respective views on three questions. And the three questions that we're going to consider tonight uh, are ones that I came up with. And several weeks ago, I emailed the guys and I said, hey, this is uh, what we want to do. We want to tackle the question, will the saints reign on the earth? Uh, that is an uh, important question that the four respective positions differ on. Uh, two of us are on one side and two of us are on the other. And then we're going to answer the question. <laughs> we're going to answer the question, uh, what do you make of the temple described in Ezekiel 40 to 48? And that will be a uh, kind of a watershed of sorts to talk about uh, how we understand hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is how do you read the scripture? And so we'll be taking that question. And then uh, we'll answer the last question, which will probably be the most uh, involved 
in the four of us, and that is what, what is your take on Revelation chapter 20? Now, I fully expect we are not going to cover all three of these questions <laughs> because, because to do so in any amount of depth is going to take longer than 60 minutes. And then we'll try to take the last five minutes. Each of us will have an opportunity to answer the question, why should we wear your glasses as we look at scripture? So I took too long for my introduction already. So let me pray for us and we'll jump right in. Lord Almighty, we do pray that you would give us light. And as we uh, razz each other and as we poke at each other, Lord, let us do so with love. And Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to answer these questions uh, in, a, in a manner that is uh, consistent with the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And we give you all the praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so gentlemen, I'm now referring to you, and I want to ask the question, will the saints reign on the earth? So um, who wants to start? I'll start and say that the post-mill position is very similar to the all-mill position, which um, we're really not too much different except uh, that post-mill believes that things are getting better and better through the world, and they will, and the world will be more Christianized before Jesus returns. So the post-mill and all-mill position are very similar on everything except that. So I'll probably lean more on Paul here because he's smarter than me. But I think we would uh, say, yes, the saints will one day reign with Christ on earth. We would say that it's not going to happen in a so-called thousand-year reign on the earth, but that Christ is reigning right now. And we are reigning with him and saints who have died and gone with Christ, they are reigning with Christ. And then Jesus will come back at his final coming, restore the world, make it new. And then we will reign with him forever on the new uh, earth. Yeah, on this passage on Revelation 5.10, which Greg is talking about, I would say it, it reads, they will reign. Uh, some translations say we will reign. And the fact that it's talking about that it seems to be pointing to the future, I think we all would agree that it's somewhere in the future on, on earth. So I would say this is not a temporal millennial kingdom, earthly reign, but it's actually the new heavens and the new earth. Um, it's actually goes along really well with the end of Revelation, like Revelation 22.7, it says... And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And this idea of a future reign, of, of us reigning on a new earth, is also a fulfillment back from Daniel 7.27, when he says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. So this idea of the kingdom being an everlasting one tells me that's a prophecy of the new earth. So I believe when, in Revelation 5.10, what's talking about is reigning on the earth, I, I believe it's looking forward to, an, to, a, to reigning on the new earth. Okay, so you're, you're, what both of you are saying is that, yes, on the earth, but it'll be on the new earth, and it'll be a... A, a different reality than that which we're talking about right now altogether. New heavens, new earth, 
Yes, uh, not not the way you guys would say that there's a literal thousand-year millennial reign where you have people in glorified bodies and unglorified bodies and Jesus present, but people still not submitting to him. We would not see that. We would say that we are reigning with Christ, especially those who, are, who have died and gone to be with Christ because Revelation 20 uh, verse 4 and 5 says that they came to life, verse 4 says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. And it never says that they came to life and reigned on the earth, which is very, which is a core part of those two belief systems is that they're literally reigning with Christ on the earth, but it never says they came to life. Secondly, it says that the people who came to life and reigned with Christ were people who were either beheaded for their faith or they didn't take the mark of the beast. And I think in other systems, this would have to refer to people who come to the tribulation. So to me, this, with other systems, this has to be talking about people, at least in the dispensational viewpoint, people who came to the tribulation and were beheaded. And you're referring to Revelation chapter 20. Verse 4, which says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Let's, let's go ahead and read it so everybody can have it in their ears at least. It says, then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So to our viewpoint, and I'll hand it over, is that believers who have died are reigning with Christ now because it says here, John said, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. He doesn't say I saw physical bodies reigning on the earth. He says, I saw their spirits in heaven reigning with Christ, which I think, which, which really was the understanding this passage is what took me from being a historic pre-mill guy to being, all, to being an all-millennial guy. Was That was the, the crux passage. What do I do with this? And the lights went off one day and said, it never mentions bodies. It only mentions spirits. So this has to be the saints reigning with Christ now. I like what you said, the light went off. <laughs> when, and you're supposed to be a post-mill tonight, too. You're not supposed to be an all-mill. <laughs> but, but the post-mill would agree with everything, pretty much everything that the all-mill says, for the most part, except for the post-mill believes that the world is, is going better. to slowly be Christianized one day. Mostly Christianized, and that Jesus will come back to a mostly Christianized world. Go ahead, George. Take, take your take on this. Yeah. Well, clearly we think that uh, there is a literal thousand-year reign on earth and that this uh, that the saints will be in this time period uh, participating with Christ in his uh, government or reigning when, when I think of that I think that the the government will be vast and will need lots of folks to uh, participate in it ruling and uh, for not for want of a better word administrating those kinds of things and we see them as uh, the next event uh, for a time period. I mean, we still have the tribulation and things like that to go. We see Revelation in more of a chronological way. And the quote from uh, Revelation 22 is clearly the eternal state. And so we can see when we jump from five and skip all the rest of the stuff till we get to 22, then I could understand why you'd forget about the millennium because you kind of pass over that part. So uh, we think that, uh, that we, those of us who think that there's a real, uh, millennial time on earth, uh, that the apostles are going to lead the tribes according to Matthew 19, uh, authority over nations to overcome at Revelation 2. 
I think that sometimes uh, the, the, those of us who have a real uh, millennium forget that there is, in fact, a spiritual aspect to what Christ is doing now and will do then. Uh, we do, in fact, Christ does, in fact, reign in the hearts of believers, including mine. And so there is that reality as well. Uh, so that I don't think the dispensationals are, would uh, discredit that kind of thinking. But we want also to understand that there will be a real live, when we get, when we get to talk about Revelation 20, I'll talk about more about how the Old Testament talks about it, but a real live reign on earth with uh, people who have overcome, or those of us who are translated, that sort of thing will participate in that uh, reign with him. I want to I make kind of three short points about this. Will the saints reign with Christ on earth? There are passages in the Bible that clearly talk about us reigning with Christ in the eternal state. I don't have any argument with saying that. Ephesians 2 is a clear example of that. And Revelation 22, 5, as was brought up, is a clear example of us reigning with Christ in the eternal state. I think that there are also some ambiguous passages that point uh, 1 Corinthians 6 is one, Revelation 3 is one. But I think that there's a, a twofold argument uh, that can be made that the, the saints really will reign on earth uh, that lends itself to a premillennial argument. My, my first passage I want to go to is Matthew 19, 28. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And that's the, that's the apostles. Now he's going to talk about us. And he says, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Uh, Mark changes that just slightly and, and says um, in the new age, eternal life. And then he says, but many who are first will be last and the last first. I want to comment on that because it sure does seem to me that there's a lot of Christians who give up a lot of material blessings and they don't get back a hundredfold. And so this passage has, is, is actually one that I've struggled with for a long time. And I want to ask Chuck to put up the chart that I gave him. In, in all fairness, I told them that they can put up charts. <laughs> yeah, after I got here, you know. <laughs> 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 Kidding. And because I think that this is a potential um, killer for the premillennial view. And you see, this age is this line right here. And then the top line would be the age to come. Now, the age to come came into history at Jesus' resurrection, his death and resurrection. The, the new age came and it, it appeared on earth. And then we are now living in the last days. At Christ's second coming, this, the millennium will occur, and there will be those who are living as mortals in this age, and there will be those who are reigning with Christ in the kingdom of, of God in, in the millennial reign. And this age will completely end at the second resurrection, at the end of the millennial age, and will 
continue forever in the eternal state. And so they'll either be the eternal state in heaven or the eternal state in hell. Now, I know that there is a um, counter argument towards this. So do either one of you guys want to take the counter argument on this, on this interpretation of Matthew 19? Well, I think in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus says, truly I say to you in the new world or the Greek is in the regeneration, which seems to imply that he's made everything new again. So I think Jesus in the post mill argument would be that Jesus is talking about the eternal state mm -hmm. then when he makes all things new. Yeah, and, and that... Well, I would say that uh, in the Old Testament, we see that a time when there seems to be some real changes in nature and the, and the world around it pre prior to, and people are still dying, so clearly not the eternal state, where animals are easy to get along with. You can let your kids play with vipers and those kinds of things. It's not a complete regeneration we would expect from the new heaven and new earth, but although that is also mentioned in Isaiah, but uh, that there is something going on that's different. There's some regeneration, something's going on differently in that time frame. I would say what George is talking about is Isaiah 65 is one example. And Isaiah 65 is actually a chiasm. In the chiasm, you have it's circular. It's a circular structure, grammatical structure, where the beginning of the passage opens up. It goes, flows towards the center of the passage, and then it reverses. It does it reverse at the end, kind of like two pieces of bread on a sandwich. And the main gist of the entire passage is actually structurally in the middle of the entire passage. So if you look at Isaiah 65, actually the whole middle section, which is the most important, since it's a chiastic structure actually has to deal with the eternal state, whereas the outer sections are leading up to it, meaning that you could argue with, a, with that kind of a structure, that Isaiah 65, the, the, the out, outer structure going in is actually going towards a fulfillment, towards a center, which is the eternal state. I, I want to get back to that argument when we get to uh, Revelation 20. Um, because I, I think that it'll be important to all of our arguments and, and we can spend a little more time on that. I wanted to lay out my two-age point here, but here's, here's the other point, and here is actually what I think is my, my key argument against their particular point that the saints are reigning now in uh, the intermediate state, which we've talked about. That's when, when Christians die right now, we don't go straight to heaven. We go into the presence of the Lord, but that presence will be altered at the second coming, which we all think is coming. All of us believe the second coming is coming again. Never mind. Um, coming again. Yeah, okay. but, uh, <laughs> but here's, here's a verse. If, if the saints are indeed reigning with Christ now in the intermediate state, then I have a problem with Revelation 6, 9 through 11 where it says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Now, I take this symbolically. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that there's a place under the throne necessarily where a bunch of martyred Christians 
literally are at this moment, you know, kind of in their own mini prison. Uh, that's, that's not what I think this is teaching. I, I, but I do think that it's teaching a, the idea that in the intermediate state, the primary um, job description of the saints is rest, not reigning. And so in, in, in this period of time between now and when Christ comes and resurrects his believers and, and raptures those at his second coming, uh, which is begging an argument between George and I, uh, at that time, between the, now and that time, the saints are at rest. So that's, that's a... a and, I, and I hate to shoot Greg down because I work <laughs> with him and he's my brother. But again, John says, I saw the souls of those who, to me, it's these are Christians who have died and they're with Jesus and they're crying out with a loud Lord, with a loud voice, Jesus, when are you going to avenge our blood for those who dwell on the earth? Meaning, that dude just killed me. I was a martyr. Jesus, when are you going to bring your judgment back down on those people down on the earth? So it is a time of rest and reigning with Christ but it's also a time of saying, Jesus, when are you going to come back? When are you going to restore? Because Paul was saying in 2 Corinthians 5, we don't want to be in that unclothed yep. state. We don't want to be in the intermediate state forever. We want to be reunited with our body, a glorified body. So I think these saints, part of that unrest of not wanting to be unclothed is, Jesus, I'm aware that things aren't the way they're supposed to be. I have a body that was left on earth awaiting resurrection to be glorified. When are you going to bring judgment on these people who took our lives, the people who have been beheaded. And again, I think it's key, like Revelation 20, he says, I saw the souls of those. And I think there's your parallel though. He's not seeing people with physical bodies. Well, tacking, tacking. Non-physical bodies, they, apparently they can rest, yeah. right? Well, I think I mean, this, that's, well, that's apparently, the point. They're resting there, not but, raining. But they can talk, so there's some sort Again, of language I, I, I talk when I rest. I yeah. just sleep in my sleep. I did want to thank Greg for lining us up the correct way here tonight, starting with what is the correct view all the way, all the way down to the downright impossible to believe. I don't know. I, I wanted to say heresy, but heresy might be on the edge of the platform. No. We, listen, we really love one another, and we wanted to disciple you on how to have these kind of arguments and go back and forth without getting heated and leaving angry and thinking that guy's a heretic, he's not a believer. Mother, so mother, I want to really keep that spirit here because Absolutely. I don't want to feel like Absolutely, I'm, yeah. I'm trying to undercut everyone and, and win the argument, even though I want to win. As, and I'm not a post-mill guy, but I want to win. As I, as I pointed out in my thing, is that your, your participation in whichever one of us is correct depends not on what you believe about what either one of us say, but what do you believe about Jesus Christ? Amen. And that's what we've all said right along. Yeah. Uh, one of the guys I listened to from John Piper said uh, he was willing to change his theology in midair. You know, it's the, <laughs> we, can, we recognize that it's Jesus Christ that makes the difference, not what we think is going to happen in the next number of years. We know that on the new earth, one of us is going to be ribbing the other three forever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so when you take a viewpoint, you got to know I'm willing to die on this viewpoint and I'm willing to be poked at for eternity by the other three people. Oh yeah, No, it, it's true. Anthony Hokema, who is the A-Mill guy, and uh, John Walvoord are going to be taking lessons from George Lapp, who's the, post -mill, well, the, the historic pre-mill guy. Okay. Um, one more verse, and then I'll let you guys have the answer, and then I want to go to the, the temple. Uh, Jesus said 
in this in the parable of the talents he said well done good servant because you have been faithful with very little you shall have authority over 10 cities and again uh, remember as you're interpreting parables uh, this is an important thing when you read parables parables are always a story given to explain one point and the point is how all the other details fit in there. Now, it's also true that there are other details and you need to pay attention to those, but I want to get your guys' response on this, that he says, you shall have authority over 10 cities. That that sounds Sounds to me like literal reigning over a population or geography. And mine, by the way, is going to be in Antarctica where I can't ruin anybody. Um, just, but yeah. But I'd still go back to that being the eternal state, the new, the, the new earth. When you look at Revelation 20, verse 4, when, it, when John says that I, I saw thrones and seated on them those who had been given authority to judge. Well, thrones in Revelation is the term for thrones is used 47 times, and 44 of those times it's referring to heavenly. So it's, very, it's, it's a very strong argument to say that John is looking at these thrones there in heaven. And the fact that they've been given authority to judge means that those on these heavenly thrones are reigning. That's a, that, the, the authority to judge means they are reigning. So I think just going back to this idea of the soul's reigning, as Benji was talking about, given authority to reign, that's, I, I just think it's talking about the eternal state, the new earth. I think you can see the crux of the difference is that my, my brothers over here see the reigning on earth stuff as being in the eternal state. And I see that also, there's reigning going on in the eternal state, but I see a period of time between now and the, thir- and the eternal state in which uh, we will reign on earth. And that's, that's, you're seeing the crux of the difference. And I guess we'll talk maybe a little bit of how we get there, but that really seems to be the you know, those guys are in eternal state, and I'm not there yet. And there's something in between me and the eternal state that we're doing something like that. Indeed, and that, that's a good place to, to make the jump. Now, I want to go to Ezekiel 40 to 48. If you're not familiar with this, uh, the end of Ezekiel uh, is a great big temple, yep. about a mile square. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it is huge. and. Uh, where he says it's going to be is not at this point big enough, right? The, the the temple mound currently isn't large enough to handle a temple that's a mile square. Mm-hmm. The, the outer court, the temple itself is not that big, but the outer court, where we, that so it's really really big. Give us your take on it. Give us your take on the. On well, the Eli, uh, Ezekiel is both a priest and a prophet, and so he's a contemporary of Daniel, and he lived in Babylon, so it's during the exile, right? And so he's preaching to a bunch of folks who have been chased out of their homeland because of their sinful uh, practices and continuing to deny repenting and those kinds of things. And so he spends the first 24 chapters talking about why Israel has been removed, which is literal. They got, they got removed, right? Mm-hmm. And then he, in 33, he calls to repentance. And then 34 and 30, through 39, he discusses how he will bring them back as to, at some time in the future, at least from Ezekiel's point of view. And 39.5 talks about a return with peace and the kinds of things we hear about elsewhere in the, in the New Old Testament. And then 40 through 48 begins this fairly detailed description of this really big temple. 
I mean, we're talking measuring steps and measuring the the, uh, the, the showbread where the showbread is going to be and the, and the uh, places where the temp, the uh, sacrifice is going to be made. And he talks about starting the sacrifices again. This is can, can give us a little bit of a problem. Why are they sacrificing again? We we don't. Why don't we sacrifice now? Because Christ took care of it. So why are these guys? And it's a, quite a fair question to ask. In my opinion, I think it's. Uh, it's much like our Lord's Supper that it's going to be a memorial. But nevertheless, it's a lot of detail going into it. Now, my colleague once said there's not enough detail to build it. Uh, okay, but if any of you have built a house and you're talking to the architect, you don't give minute details. You kind of tell him what you want, and he's the one that's supposed to know how to you know, make it work so the building doesn't fall down. <clears throat> so uh, I think that it makes sense that this temple will exist at some point in the future. So I think where, right? If it's going to be in the future, where is it going to be? Now, we could say it's in the eternal state. That's Since we, my brothers don't have a millennial kingdom, let's suppose it's the eternal state. The problem with that, of course, is that Revelation 21, 22, after the thousand years, says there is no temple in Jerusalem. It's, it's Jesus Christ. So in theory, I, have, I, I tend to think it goes in the millennial kingdom. Again, I hold that we're going to do a real one, so the real temple will be built there. Now, it's interesting, uh, it's, it's uh, like I said, they'll be doing, apparently, sacrifices. Uh, it mentions Zadok, and Zadok is, because he served David well and Solomon well, is one of the only, is the only priest family that is allowed to approach uh, the, inner, the uh, Holy of Holies, is from the Zadok family. And it's interesting that they mention it, and you read through it, it's like reading Leviticus. I happen to have been reading through both Leviticus and Ezekiel at the same time, because of this reading thing I do. And it was eerie, you know, I would say the same thing. I'd be like, didn't I read this? Oh, I read it over in Leviticus. That's kind of scary. But Ezekiel is a priest, so he would know how to do that stuff. So my, con my thing on it is, is that uh, it's a real temple, in, yet in the future. It will resemble this thing that we read here, if not exactly. You know, I don't know, but it will certainly resemble it. And that it will be here during the Millennial Kingdom, and it will eventually be destroyed like everything else on Earth at some point. Let That's me respond real quick, and then I'll, because I'm probably going to believe along the same lines with Paul here, and then when Greg probably talks about why Ezekiel saw what he saw according to his worldview. So I will agree with probably both of them on those points, but I'll say, one, it seems odd that in this so-called millennial kingdom that we would be performing animal sacrifices. When you read the book of Hebrews, it keeps saying, you can't go back, you can't go back to that thing. We're, we're, that is done with. So the fact that we would be doing animal sacrifices in the temple when Jesus is right there strikes me as odd. That's not a reason to completely disagree with it, but it seems odd to me that we would be doing that. And then secondly, as far as the minute details of the temple, it seems odd that that Ezekiel wouldn't get minute details about the temple when you get such minute details in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy about the tabernacle and about the temple to then come to a future temple and say, eh, it's about a mile big, make it, and, and there. So, and, that, and that's just me coming back quickly, thoughts in my head. So I'll hand it over to Paul and let him talk about the temple. Yes, I, I believe Ezekiel 40 through 48 is referring to the new heavens and the new earth. 
What we see first off is we see Ezekiel has a vision in Ezekiel 40 verse 2. It says, In visions of God he brought me to the land of Israel and set me down on a very high mountain on which was a structure like a city of the south. So first off he says he has a vision. And this actually sounds very similar to Revelation 21.10 where it says, And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The very fact that we're told this is a vision should already clue us in that this is there's going to be it's going to be steeped in symbolism because in the Old Testament and the New Testament the visions are always steeped in symbolism. The idea of him being swept to a high mountain shows similarity to Revelation 21. What Ezekiel promised in Ezekiel 40 through 48 is what John saw as a reality. <laughs> Revelation 21:22 is actually a great commentary on Ezekiel 40 through 48. There's three main reasons I have here why this can't be taken literally. First off, first off as has already been pointed out, the term for length appears 40 times, the term width appears 55 times, and the term for height only appears once, and the height's referring to the outer wall. So nobody could build from that blueprint. Number two, there's no literal high mountain that can give anyone this type of a vantage point of Jerusalem. Number three, if this is taken literally, the priesthood is restored, animal sacrifices get reestablished, and Gentiles have to get circumcised again in order to enter the sanctuary. We're taking a complete redemptive U-turn. But what did Jesus do? Over four times in Hebrews, we're told that Jesus died once and for all. Hebrews 9.26 is an example. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 10.12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down the right hand of God. This idea of this being a temporal, this idea of this being uh, temporal sacrifices in a millennial kingdom is just not there. You don't see temporal anywhere in the passages from 40 to 48. You actually see seven large motifs or patterns as you read through Ezekiel 40 through 48. You see everlasting mountain of God. You see everlasting temple of God. You see everlasting glory of God. You see everlasting worship of God, everlasting river of God, everlasting homeland of God, and everlasting city of God. Seven large patterns, and they all have to do with everlasting, which is eternal. It's not temporal. Again, Revelation 21, 22 should be our commentary to Ezekiel's vision. He, over, within six times within Revelation 21 through 22, John is alluding back to Ezekiel, and he's taking it to mean figurative. Perfect example is Revelation 22 through 1 through 2. It talks about the river that's also mentioned in Ezekiel. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were of the healing of the nations. So given these reasons, I think the figurative interpretation is the correct one. And uh, several of the things that Paul just mentioned, I don't necessarily disagree with, but they're not really for me the central, the meat of it. And, and uh, Benji already alluded to this because he and I have had conversations about it. You know, weird thing, two guys have offices next to each other, we talk, go figure. Uh, Ezekiel happens to be my favorite major prophet uh, for, for several reasons. But one of the reasons, and this isn't to the diminishment of Isaiah and Jeremiah, but God's glory is absolutely central to Ezekiel. He is interested in God's glory almost above any and everything else, period. Straight through the whole book. And 
So if God is to be glorified uh, from Ezekiel sitting by the Kabar River, foreign river, sitting in a foreign country, uh, being told to sing songs, songs of Zion, as it says in Psalm something or other, uh, if he's going to be interested in that, then he knows two things need to happen. The first one is Israel needs to be forgiven. Holy smokes, they have a lot to be forgiven about, right? And not only do they need to be forgiven, but then they also need to be restored to Israel, to the land, because the land was central to them. And so in this concern, when God is giving Ezekiel a vision on uh, what this will look like, their restoration, their forgiveness, he pictures the, oh my goodness, best possible temple on steroids you could possibly get. Uh, I mean, this is, this is just astounding. Seriously, go home and read it tonight uh, because these, these nine chapters are, are really important. But secondly, Ezekiel's a priest. And so Ezekiel as a priest is very interested in holiness. Okay, how in the Jewish mindset do you become holy? Well, you do so uh, by trusting the promises of God for you in Christ as outlined in those days, which was to offer sacrifices. And so his understanding of this holiness is going to involve temple sacrifices. With these two key ideas, I take these nine chapters as being figurative, spiritual, how you want to look at it, for the best possible worship of God's people in, I'm going to say, the millennial kingdom, and I'll, I'll speak to that in one second. What, what could God's people do to give the best worship? And these are the only terms he could have thought of. There, it would have been impossible for him to say, Chet Harder Jr. III needs to lead a rockin' band, and that would be the ultimate worship. No, 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 what, silence on that? Wow. Yeah. What? <laughs> I expected something. Something, yeah. A, yeah. a rockin' band leading worship could not possibly have occurred to him and would have been absolutely meaningless to um, 27 centuries of God's people. Okay? And so it had to be this way. Now, let me speak to the fact whether it's the eternal state or the millennial kingdom. And uh, I don't look at this passage as what I call a controlling passage. I can't make a foolproof uh, argument that says this is the millennial kingdom as opposed to the new kingdom. I take this as the millennial kingdom because I have other passages that this can fit into that worldview and um, that understanding of scripture and it, it fits. Whether it's the eternal state, like my brothers down there say, uh, could be. Um, I, I don't see animal sacrifices, so I, I could say it's eternal state. But again, because I hold to a premillennial view, I just think that this fits that premillennial view. Any comments? So what you're hearing is eternal state, right? New, new heavens and new earth. Eternal when God comes to restore earth. things... Sort of eternal new. state, sort of kind of. 
I'm, and I'm saying it uh, uh, clearly a, a visible temple at some point in the uh, Messianic kingdom. And part of why I don't think, I, I don't rely so much on uh, Ezekiel's take. He's getting this from an angel, not from his own head. So mm -hmm. that's why I think these, this tripped temple will really exist. And, and you're right, he talks about sacrifices. Uh, you know, we'll see how that goes. You know, I, I have the same issue with you do about how we're not supposed to be doing that anymore. Or what, what's going on here? And, and yeah. this is one of the areas when we get there, we will say, so that's what it was. Okay. So that's yeah. what it was. <laughs> and that means if there's a lot of sacrifice, there's a lot of flies. And <laughs> it's a messy. I don't business. want flies in the Millennial yeah, Kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. messy and The sacrificial stinky. system was messy. Yeah. yeah was you know, terrible. and, I, and um, along with what Greg was saying, I think if, if Ezekiel lived in our day and he saw this vision, that's what God would say. Let me describe church life as we know it. There's an awesome band where everybody loves all the music is how he would have said it to Ezekiel, where no one calls Michelle Winger on Sunday morning and says, I can't teach the class today. I know it's 10 minutes until it starts. It would be this perfect environment. He's trying to think of, like Greg said, worship on steroids. <laughs> that was his worldview. If Ezekiel like lived that. in our day, it, it would look different. He calls Michelle and says, can we help? Yeah. Right. Yeah, in the Millennial Kingdom, would be, you'll have 20 people in line. If, if, according to George's view, there's 20 people in line saying, let me serve today. Yes, yes. Amen. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hear a doubter. Oh, no. <laughs> but again, I think it's important to realize that we all agree on this. Revelation 20 is the only passage that talks about a so-called millennial reign of a thousand years. There's a passage in 2 Peter that talks about a thousand years as a day, but only Revelation 20 talks about it. So all of us would have to go to that passage really, like George said and Greg said, this isn't really a passage I go to per se to build it. You got all these others, but Revelation 20 is the one passage that talks about a thousand year reign of some sort, whatever that means, and we all right. disagree and with the, that means. And these guys are throwing me a fat pitch. This is where we're turning. So take out your Bible and turn to Revelation 20 now and I am going to read our passage for us and uh, then we'll, we'll start locking horns because this, this is where it gets real. <laughs> Revelation chapter 20. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be released for a little while. Then... I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Okay, uh, out of fairness, because George started us on one and Benji started us on one, I'm going to let Paul start us on this one, and uh, we'll Five throw minutes. darts at him. 
got five minutes. Okay, so last week I, I touched on a little bit how Revelation 20 can't follow chronologically from Revelation 19. Because in Revelation 19, it talks about a war where all of the enemies of Christ are destroyed. And so Revelation 20, to me, does not make, you cannot follow it chronologically because eventually Satan is released and then he deceives all the nations to come back. So what you have is you have glorified believers, according to millennial view, if it's a millennium, you have glorified believers either rebelling against Christ after his reign for a thousand years, or you somehow have nations repopulated, which in glorified bodies you can't procreate. There's no marriage in heaven. That being said, Revelation 20, I believe, comes back to the gospel age, this age. And verses, for example, verses 1 through 3, it's figurative. The listeners would have known that chains, a pit, dragon for Satan would have been symbols. They know that Satan can't be bound by literal chains. Revelation is chocked full of symbolism and figurative. The word, or the number thousand, if you take that literally, you're going against the rest of Revelation where numbers are always used in figurative senses. Ten means completeness. Ten to the third is a thousand. Twelve apostles, twelve tribes. You just have to, to take that literally, you, you're on a slippery slope. Now, Satan was restrained for a specific purpose, and that was not to rebel, not complete worldwide deception and rebellion against the church, as we see in verses 8 and 9. During this church age, Satan being bound means he's being restrained until a completeness of time. If you go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 through 9, I think it parallels very well with this idea of Satan being restrained. It says, And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. And this idea of Satan being bound and restrained is also elsewhere in the New Testament. Luke 10, verses 17 and 18. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Or you can go to John 12, 31 through 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. That word for driven out, ekbalo, is derived from the same root word as the word for throw Satan in the abyss that we see in chapter 3 of Revelation, or in verse 3 of Revelation 20. And what's more important in this passage, John chapter 12, is that it's talking about Jews and Gentiles being reconciled or coming together when Christ hangs on the cross. Revelation 20 takes us back to the gospel age. And what's huge about the gospel age is that both Jews and Gentiles are now one in the body of Christ. Revelation 20, verse 4 through 6, we see a vision of thrones. Well, thrones is used 47 times in Revelation. 44 of those times refers to heavenly, heavenly places. He sees Christians who have died, both martyrs and believers. Nowhere in Revelation 20 do you see a golden age where people are hanging out and chilling with lambs and wolves. What you see is you see martyrdom, you see persecution. That fits that time as well. John not only wrote to us, he wrote to people who were being persecuted under Rome, under Nero, who was a psychopath. That would have gave them comfort to know that fellow believers that I've seen that got lit up at the stake to be a flaming torch at night for Nero are actually reigning now in thrones, in heavenly thrones. It, it gives them comfort at the time, and it gives us comfort now to know that fellow believers are reigning that have died. 
Now, if you look at verse 5, I wanted to get this really quick, the first resurrection. If you get to verse 5, it starts off with the rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were finished. If any of you have the NIV or the NET, you'll see that it's in parentheses. And that rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years were finished is a parenthetical statement, meaning that it's subordinate to the main gist of that sentence. You could take that parenthetical statement out and his thought would still flow perfectly. So if you read it, it's just before verse 5, you see, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, meaning the souls and the thrones. This is the first resurrection. The first resurrection is pointing back to those that are in the thrones. Now, souls that are in thrones now in heaven, do they have bodies? No, they don't. So this first resurrection can't mean a physical resurrection. When you look at the word first, which is actually protos in the Greek, it doesn't, actually, it doesn't necessarily mean a sequential order. It means a difference in rank or a difference in kind. What Paul's doing, or what John is doing here, is he's doing a play on words. He's using, he, what he's saying is, this first resurrection, it's of a different kind, like the first earth. This first resurrection occurs at the same time as this first, this first, or this earth. It happened at that time, which is now. It's referring to resurrection of the believers who are now reigning with Christ in the thrones. Because he then says in verse 6, he says, Blessed and holy is the one who takes part in the first resurrection. The second death has now power over them. What's a second death? Verse 14, eternal judgment. It's a lake of fire, the second death. So you go back to the parenthetical statement, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were finished. They're non-believers. Because when you look at this, he's not saying they're blessed. He's saying the souls in heaven now are blessed, and second death has no power over them. So those that were rest of the dead did not come to life until a thousand years, they're not blessed, and they second death will have power over them. So they are non-believers. And you see all through the New Testament that there's only one general resurrection. So this first resurrection can't be a physical resurrection. John 5, 28 through 29. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. You have those resurrection of life and those going to judgment. You have one general resurrection. In summary, Revelation 21 through 3 is John seeing the events on earth during the current church age. And during this age, Satan's power is restrained from gathering all nations, the enemies of Christ against the church. Revelation 24 through 6, John sees the thrones in heaven during this age and souls reigning with Christ. They are blessed and will not face eternal judgment. But non-believers, when Christ returns, the dead are raised, judgment incurs, and the new heavens and the new earth. I want to call two of your premises into question. Uh, the first one is uh, directed at your recapitulation in, in Revelation, how there's these seven circles, whereas I take it more chronologically. And one of your arguments to, to say that it's not chronological is in verse 21 of chapter 19, where it says, and the rest were slain. Uh, it says, let's start in verse 20. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who is in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. And these two were thrown alive in the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest, okay, the key here is going to be who are the rest. 
The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with flesh. And your argument is that the rest of everybody else, because the believers had been uh, raptured or resurrected at the second coming. And I want to say that although that's a possible translation or, or a possible interpretation, I would say a better interpretation is the rest of the combatants, the rest of those who were uh, taking arms against the Lord and against his anointed in, in Jerusalem. And I have, fortunately, another verse that will help make that um, understood. If you turn to Zechariah chapter 14, which I take as a very relevant passage, and I won't argue why I do, but if you want to go back, you can look it up I yourself. I agree with it, yes. Um, it says in verse 16, Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come up against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts. So evidently, there are those who survive this great tribulation and this final war uh, that is attacking Jerusalem. And therefore, we have people who will populate um, the millennial kingdom. Because I, I, I agree with my amillennial brethren that that is that's one of the sticking points to premillennialism. I, I will agree with you on that. But I think we have a plausible interpretation. And, and my second point, and then I'll let you speak again about your argument. And this is before I make my argument, so hang in there. Um, the second thing... And other thing you said uh, when you were addressing verses 4 through 6, then I saw thrones seated on them were those to whom the authority of judge was committed. I'm going to take it that that's a group of people. And we saw who that group of people were in Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 17. He gave them authority over 10 cities. And if you remember, five cities and two or one city. Um, and I take it that Matthew 19, Revelation 2, and these others are also referring to believers who will have authority when? In the eternal kingdom? Maybe, uh, but I take it that they will have authority in the millennial kingdom. And, and, or excuse me, also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded. So now we have martyrs uh, who very well could be uh, in fact, I would, I would say Pastor Benji's right when he says these are the tribulation martyrs. But then it says uh, for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. Oh, I'm sorry, I said that backwards. These, I think, are martyrs throughout history. And then the second, the next group and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or hands. I would agree with what he said, those are tribulation martyrs. And so we have here three groups of people uh, that seem to cover not, not just the church age, not just 2,000 years, but going all the way back to Cain and Abel, and, or Adam and Eve, for that matter, although they weren't martyred. So, so that's why I say, and it says, had not worshipped. It, it, it's referring to those who were in the past and now are are in the in here present in my opinion the millennial kingdom yeah and i think we agree that the post mill and the all mill view and the historic pre-mill believes that well and 
the historic premillennial is going to be a little different. Believes we're in the tribulation now. If you ask a Christian in Syria right now, they're going to say, hey, we're in the tribulation. I don't know what you people in the Western world are talking about, but we're living through it right now. So when I said earlier that these are people that come out of the tribulation, I'm not talking about the great seven-year tribulation seven that the, the dispensational viewpoint would hold. I'm talking about people, really the people of God from all times, since yep. Adam and Eve who have suffered because they believe in Yahweh, they believe in Jesus. But real quickly now, I'll respond to your your statement of saying that the people that Jesus comes back to destroy in Revelation 19 are only combatants. It actually says back in verse 18 that these, this is the flesh of all men. He doesn't go out of his way to say he comes back to destroy only the combatants. He says Jesus comes back to destroy the flesh of all men who do not believe. And then let me say something real quick because I, I want to just give the post-mill view on this. The post-mill view does not come to Revelation 20 to build its... Uh, theological system. It will deal with Revelation 20, but the post-mill view goes to Jesus. The post-mill view goes to the Great Commission to make disciples. The post-mill will go to the teachings of Jesus in the parables of the kingdom. In, in fact, Kenneth Gentry, who's probably the premier uh, uh, post-mill person today, says this, that Revelation 20 um, is irrelevant to framing an eschatological system, meaning they don't. The post mill doesn't go to Revelation 20 like these other views to say this is why we believe what we believe. They'll talk about it when you get there. So, uh, Kenneth Gentry also said, and then I'll stop here so others can talk. He says Revelation 20 is largely irrelevant for understanding God's redemptive historical plan. Meaning, you can get God's redemptive historical plan fully before you ever get to Revelation 20. It doesn't need Revelation 20 for its system to work. It starts in Genesis 3.15 with God saying, I'm going to send the Redeemer to crush the head of the serpent. So we don't need Revelation 20 to build our system. The post-mill view doesn't. It goes to Jesus, which all the prophecies are pointing towards. I was going to say really quick uh, what you're talking about too on verse 18 in chapter 19. It's a universal scope because he talks about free and slave. John, uh, John uses that earlier in Revelation 13, 16, the same phrase. He says, also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name, the enemies of Christ. He's using that as a universal scope. So in Revelation 19, I think it's hard to say that he's not using that as a universal scope of the enemies of Christ. I, I, I hear you. I, I'm going to disagree with you. I, I do think that, that there remains uh, a, a plausible, and I, I would say given other evidence, a very plausible argument that I don't, I don't think this is universal. And furthermore, I, I would say Zechariah. But that goes back to, and I'm sorry to cut you off, I just want to remind people, it's because of the lenses that you're wearing. If you're wearing dispensational glasses, when you read Revelation 20, you're going to interpret it with those lenses. If you're reading, wearing post-mill, all-mill, or historic pre-mill, when you come to the passage, you're going to bring that prejudice, you're going to bring that presupposition, yeah. and we all do this with Scripture. Yeah. We read Scripture typically as evangelical Western American believers. That's the lens that we read through, scripture through. Dan and Paula would tell you that as someone in Syria or in the Middle East is going to read scripture differently because of their culture. So I want you to understand that it's not like I'm thinking these three are heretics. It's that yeah. we all have different glasses on, which is why we can all read the same verse and say, that's not what it means. It means this. 
Yeah, and, and that, that is a great point. In fact, well, you know what? Because it's after seven already, I know nobody's satisfied with this discussion, but uh, uh, I, I want to start with Pastor Benji, and I want, I want to answer the last question, and the last question is, uh, with the idea of what Benji just said about wearing glasses, I want each of us to take our turn and go down the line. Why should we choose to wear the glasses you're wearing as you're looking at scripture? Postmill believes that the world is eventually going to be Christianized. The majority of the world is going to be eventually be Christianized. Christian values in the world. Now, why should you be a postmill? I'll give you four reasons. It will make you an evangelist. How many of you struggle to share your faith? If you are a post-mill person, part of your viewpoint is that you have to share the gospel so that the kingdom can advance, so that the world become Christianized, so that Jesus can return. So if you struggle to share the gospel, you should consider being a post-mill. <laughs> post-mill believes in the power of the gospel to change hearts. Let me ask you, do you know who God's elect are? No. Do we have a means to reach the majority of the world with the gospel? Amen. Yes. TV, internet. Could the gospel go to the majority of the world right now? Yes, because of TV and internet. Is the gospel the power of God for salvation? Yes. Therefore, it is possible for the majority of the world to come to know Jesus Christ within the next 30 minutes, right? If everyone had access to the gospel, it's possible for a majority of the world to come to Jesus Christ. So the kingdom of God, according to Postmill, advances through the gospel. Think about it, because I know you're thinking, how's the world ever going to do this? How did Jesus start? He started with 12 men. It grew to 15 and 20,000 believers in Acts, in the early books of Acts, after Peter's second sermon. There were maybe almost 20,000 believers in Jerusalem. So the power of the gospel, post-mill believes in the power of the gospel. It is hopeful. It doesn't just read, hear the news and think everything's negative and bad. It believes in the power of the gospel. It keeps its eyes on the power of the gospel. And then lastly, I would tell you this is because of the theologians throughout history who have believed post-meal. John Owen, the premier Puritan pastor, was a post-meal. Jonathan Edwards, one of my favorite theologians, who wore a powdered wig and knickers, he was post-meal. Charles Hodge, B.B. Warfield, these Princeton theologians before Princeton went very liberal. George Whitfield, the great American preacher. Robert Murray Machane. And sometimes Calvin? And Spurgeon are post-mill in their sermons. You get some of that feel. And today, R.C. Sproul is a, a quasi. So there's a reason why. Um, let, me, let me close with this, because I, I want other people to talk, because I feel like I've talked too much. Uh, Lorraine Bettner says in his book on the millennium, he says, the marvel is not that there is so much evil in the world, the marvel is that there is so much righteousness, and that is because of the gospel, and that's why you should be post-mill, even though I'm not. <laughs> but the takeaway I get from post-mill is they believe in the power of the gospel, Amen. and you can't argue with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Amen. Go for it, Paul. Well, did you, did you want to go first, George? No, You didn't no, get to really talk no, about no, 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 no. <laughs> no, I've got glasses. I'm the only one out here. No, he doesn't. Okay. <laughs> Do tell, tell us why we should we be dispensational. Never, we never let you do uh, He Revelation didn't get to 20. do Revelation oh. 20. Oh. oh, well, Revelation 20, and tell us why. I'm sorry. I will discuss it on the, on the glasses thing. I'll, I'll talk about it then. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Got glasses. Yeah. Why should we be all male? Why them? should we be all male? 
besides it's one of the so longest running frameworks, so it's been tried and tested. It's been around since historic pre-mill with early church fathers. So that's one thing. It doesn't make it right, but it's been around for a long time, so it's been tried and tested. It's been around a lot longer than America, and I know it's Memorial Day weekend, so I love America. God bless our soldiers defending the country. But the system has been around a lot longer, and the lens a lot of us look through, I grew up, was a Western American viewpoint. And all mill has been around a lot longer than that. And it's a framework, like we are talking about, we're all reading, we're all looking at scripture through a certain colored lens. And what really attracted me to the all mill position was how seriously they take the entire Bible as one entire story, it's one unit, going from Genesis to Revelation, how it's all tied together and how seriously they take using the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament instead of the other way around. So now Christ comes out of the shadows in the New Testament and he explains what the Old Testament means. You have the Apostle Paul who's gone for 14 years trying to figure out what this gospel is because he was an expert at the Old Testament. Now that Jesus has come out of the shadows, you now see the gospel and Paul was overwhelmed with that. He was gone for 14 years trying to figure this out. The all position says we look at the New Testament when they reinterpret Old Testament passages, it means what it means according to the New Testament authors. And so we have in Genesis all the way through the Old Testament, we have types and shadows, prophecies looking forward to something. But we're on this side of the cross. We're on the other side that after Jesus came. So now we have a better understanding, a more clear picture. And that's kind of how that whole framework of all millennialism is built off of. Okay, why should you look at it through my glasses? You understand the, cons the concept of keep it simple, stupid? <laughs> Dispensationalism keeps it simple. We read the scriptures and try to understand what it means to the person who, to whom it was written by the person who wrote it. And the Old Testament is full of indications that there will be a return, a future for Israel. Even Paul says so in, in Romans chapter 9 and 11, that section in there. So when I look down at, at the future, what's coming, I say, well, what fits? My brother says that New Testament interprets the Old Testament, but in doing that sometimes, we ignore the Old Testament. The Old Testament does have stuff to tell us about what's coming. Uh, the, the symbolism he talked about, how chains don't bind Satan. Clearly, we look at some of those illustrations and can say, well, we don't take it literally that Satan's going to have these chains on him, but maybe, who knows. But it means that he's going to be bound, and clearly he's not bound now. We just had a nice sermon a few weeks ago about uh, Satan roaring, going about like a roaring lion, trying to make our life miserable. Doesn't sound like he's bound, bound much. So what we do, but dispensationalism, by the way, is a hermeneutic. We're talking about the eschatology, the only eschatology piece that, that uh, my friend here, Greg, right? Anyway, is... Uh, Great is, friends. Yeah, is different from me. <laughs> buddies. Is when the revelation happens, uh, the, the, uh, the, uh, the rapture happens, right? And it's because our hermeneutic is different and how we look at the, the scriptures in the Old Testament and the New Testament about what happens. So I would say, looking at my lenses, is... I get chided, by the way, once in a while, so when do you stop doing literal? And of course, I, I turn back and say, so when do you stop allegorizing? You know, I mean, there's got to be point on both sides of that. Mm -hmm. In any case, uh, I think you should understand scripture as well as you're able. This morning, for instance, uh, the kiss thing, right? 
You know, if they, we say if you take it literally, we should kiss each other. Well, you should take it literally, literally if you were living in uh, Peter's time, because that's what they did. Now, if Peter were writing for us today, he would probably say you should bump fists in love, yeah, because yeah, we're worried about getting sick. <laughs> so you bump fists in love, not on each other's faces, that kind of thing. But uh, but we interpret scripture to understand what it means to those to whom it was written at the time it was written, and we make room for what is clearly a picture, like the chains, for instance, right? That's clearly a picture. But the binding part is the literal part. He will be literally bound, and he isn't yet. So, in any case, uh, that's why I think you might be more comfortable with a uh, dispensational view, hermeneutic, that is taking things literally as much as you can. I am uh, not going to tell you why you should wear my glasses until next Sunday night when I'll take a whole time to do it. And I'm, uh, hey, he gets an hour and we got what? <laughs> hey, uh, membership has its privileges. Ah, there you go. Uh, so <laughs> come, back, come back next week and, and you'll see why actually I, I fit somewhere in between these two systems of dispensationalism and covenant theology, which is what... Um, uh, the, the, the theology that gives birth to both amillennialism and postmillennialism. So do come back. Uh, I am really pleased. I think this went really well. So did, did we do a good job of discipling how to talk? I mean, because I really, I didn't want to hog the mic and I didn't want to like throw someone under the bus. So if yeah, I did no. that, I can, I can handle a public rebuke. It, somebody gave me this thing. That, was that you? <laughs> So every time I bring it up so I can read it, you know. It's, it's just it, proof you're living in the tribulation. It, 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 I, I think that figuratively went down. It wasn't literal. Yeah, it was figurative. <laughs> I love it. All right. As a, as a way of showing our love for each other, I'm not going to kiss Paul, but I'll ask him to close us in prayer. <laughs> Dear Heavenly Father, just thank you that we could get together this evening and discuss these uh, topics. Uh, many people get angry at each other about when they have um, differences and, and they're not willing to agree and they have these differences. And uh, just thank you for allowing us to get up here and just explain these differing views and do it in a loving way. And, May we glorify you and honor you and um, just thank you for all your many blessings. Thank you for this church and in your precious name. Amen. 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 Thank you all for coming.